0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs on How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It by typing How Do We Fix It podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is we howdowefixit.me, me. You can also find How Do We Fix It on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we like it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It?
1: Jim, you and I like to think we're reasonable people and that through being reasonable, we might be able to change our minds.
2: Might be able to change our minds. It doesn't happen that often. But we also like to doubt everything and challenge everything. So let's challenge the idea of rational decision-making.
1: Stop being reasonable. How we really change our minds with Eleanor Gordon-Smith.
3: We are surrounded by the clash of ideas. Like, never before has it been as easy technologically, legislatively, for people of opposing views to speak to each other. And yet, very, very rarely have I seen someone have a moment of reckoning or a spontaneous conversion or a moment where they genuinely say, like, oh, that's a really good point. Like, thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. It feels to me like. It's surprising how much we still put faith in rational argument when so often we see that it's not just rational argument that works. Our show
1: is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do
3: we fix it?
1: There really is a place called the Center for Applied Rationality, which offers this four-day workshop at the cost of around 4000 bucks, where you can go and have a workshop on reasoning skills. I think that, that would be perfect for you, Jim.
2: You, are you suggesting I need help with, uh, <laughs> with my reasoning skills?
1: Exactly, because you don't always agree with me.
2: But this is something we all think. Everyone else around me, people are holding beliefs that are wrong. If I just had enough time, if they would just listen to me, I could help them fix their bad opinions.
1: Yeah, I mean, just one example shocking for me is a cousin in Britain who I really love, who thinks that Boris Johnson is the absolute greatest and that Brexit is all going to be wonderful. She keeps telling me this and, and you know, I just don't know where to begin to change her mind.
2: You know, our show is all about challenging, popular perceptions, coming up with fresh ideas, but it's also based on the idea that if you just hear the right information, get the right facts, it's not that hard to change your mind. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that actually it is challenging to change your mind.
1: Yeah, challenging and extremely difficult in some cases.
2: Eleanor Gordon-Smith is a writer and radio broadcaster working at the corner of academia and the chaos of everyday life.
1: She is the author of the new book, Stop Being Reasonable. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in on this thought that, that many of us have, that the people around us, who are perhaps not quite like us, are irrational. And I want to fix them. Can we? How difficult is that? Ah,
3: it's astonishingly difficult. The first thing is I think that we are way too quick to attribute irrationality to other people. I think the, the motivation behind wanting to cast the people that we disagree with as irrational is a suspect motivation. We are overly confident in our own abilities to reason and to reason well, that we feel like the people who have wound up in a different place to us must have made some mistake. But is it possible to reach people or is it possible to engage with people rather than is it possible to fix people? then I feel like absolutely the answer is yes. I mean, the the book is a series of stories about people who've done just that. And what got you started on that? Right, for me, this is a deeply personal project. So when I was in high school and when I was in early university, I was a big debating nerd. So I spent an awful lot of my time constructing like premises and arguments and conclusions and being a, a real sort of like a stunt pilot of rationality. You know, like I turned a lot of loops within loops and I spent a lot of time doing quite formal showy argumentation. I felt like I was powerfully good at this. And then purely by coincidence, I wound up interviewing Ira Glass of This American Life when he came out to Australia. So he is the godfather of all things interviewing and and radio-oriented. And he came out to Australia. He was doing a show. I interviewed him. And about a week later, he sent me an email saying, "Are are you working on anything that would be good for the radio program? And the truth was like, no, I wasn't. I didn't have anything on the boil at that moment. But you don't get that email and reply, no. Um, (laughs) So I pitched in this idea instead, which was, why don't I go out into the streets of the party district where I'm from and wait for the inevitable onslaught of catcalling and street harassment, vulgar remarks. So guys essentially being jerks. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a pithier way of putting it, yeah. Yeah. Um, And why don't I take all these debating skills and see if I can't, put them to an actual road test.
1: So in other words, confront men who were either pinching your behind or saying something lewd or suggestive and trying to change their minds?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the mission was twofold. The first thing was to say, like, look, would you come back here and just say into my microphone what you just said to me? And would you tell me what you were hoping for with it? Like, if this had gone as well as possible for you, how would it have gone? And then from there, I felt like, well, great, I'm going to have this this architectural map of why they're doing what they're doing because they will have told me, right? From there, it's going to be two easy steps to the conclusion that they ought not to do this anymore. I'm a fiercely good arguer, so this is going to be a piece of cake. You know, we'll be home in time for supper. And in fact, what happened was I wound up spending weeks and weeks walking around the party district of Australia trying to change these people's minds and having conversation after conversation where I just struck out. So, So what do these people say to you? It was funny. It was, a, it was a weird mash of offensive and kind of childishly sweet. Um, one guy said that he was just like hoping to to meet women. One guy said that he was just like looking for a reaction, any reaction. But one guy told me that he would smack women on the rear end as a way of getting their attention. And I was like, why? This seems like a baffling thing to do. He said, I'm just another paradise bird flaunting my shit. And anyway, I mean, the, the consistent thing in in all of these self-reported motivations was they didn't understand that women didn't like this. In fact, when I explicitly said, so is it important to you that women enjoy this, they all said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great fun. You know, we're, we're part of this, almost like a piece of street theater together. You know, they, they had the impression that we were all just like being rowdy.
2: And then you did the debate Thing, and yeah. you actually brought data to the discussion, surveys yeah. and stuff. And how did they respond to that?
3: Oh, well, they, they capitulated. They went home. They said, well, I'll never do it again. Thank you for changing my mind. No, that's not <laughs> at all what happened. So the first pass was for me to say, look, plainly women don't like this. Like, trust me. I'm a woman. You're not. I'm friends with more women than you are. We don't enjoy it. And to that, they just replied, you can't speak for all women. So I went out and I interviewed a bunch of women on the street and they kind of confirmed my suspicion that women don't much enjoy this. And then I went to the the data and I took this back particularly to the one man who said the thing about being the paradise bird. And he got as far as I think experiencing some real cognitive dissonance. Like it genuinely did make him kind of uncomfortable and sad. And I would say to him, given the data, that means that just the odds suggest that you probably have made someone uncomfortable at one point. That made him sad. But Closing the motivational gap between the recognition of that fact and the thought that I'm implicated by that was very difficult and didn't ultimately happen. And so after spending a good, I think, three hours with him and him alone, but the way that it ended was he said, I'll stop slapping women, but uh, compliments and whistles and shouts I'm still going to do. So you failed. I did. I really did. I bit the dust very hard.
2: You grew up in that world of hothouse, you know, debate club discussions where high priority is put on rational conclusions and evidence. But you say that not everyone uses words in the same way. Not everyone responds in the same way.
3: This was for me the kind of moment of reckoning that words don't work the same way for everyone, that it's not a a standardized currency in the way that we think it is. This became really vivid for me when I was doing this catcalling experiment where what would happen was I would say, women don't enjoy this. And they would say, you can't speak for all women. And functionally, they would say, I know better than you do about what women like. And it occurred to me, and it was often pointed out to me, that if it had been a male friend of theirs to say, buddy, I don't think women are enjoying this, that would have gotten through to them in a way that my – exact same words, wouldn't have. The central insight is that the facts of who you are and the person that you are and the body that you inhabit can affect the way that your words are received by the people around you. In other words, rational argument looks different depending on whose mouth it comes out of. I think we're wrong to imagine that everyone is equally well-armed in a clash of words.
1: I'd like you to read this paragraph from your book and just discuss it.
3: Why, when we know that changing our minds is as tangled and difficult and as messy as we are, do we stay so wedded to the thought that rational debate is the way to go about it?
2: I'm wedded to that. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Let's fight. Let's do it. Um, It was in many ways surprising for me that I wasn't able to have success with these catcallers. But also in another way, it was profoundly unsurprising. I mean, do we seriously believe that a stranger with a microphone would have been able to get these men to give up something which is pretty integral to their identity? What I was asking them to do in that moment was to confront the fact that they were part of a problem that they abhorred, but that they didn't think that they were connected to. That's a really difficult thing to ask someone to do. And we are surrounded by the clash of ideas. Like never before has it been as easy technologically, legislatively for people of opposing views to speak to each other. And yet very, very rarely have I seen someone have a moment of reckoning or a spontaneous conversion or a moment where they genuinely say like, oh, that's a really good point. Like, thank, thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. And it feels, it feels to me like, it's surprising how much we still put faith in rational argument when so often we see that it's not just rational argument that works. Now, I should be clear, I'm still a professional philosopher. I am someone who puts a great deal of stock in argument. I just think that we have, and I had constricted our understanding of what belongs inside a rational argument so much that we forget to allow things like What does this belief mean to you? How are you feeling right now? What parts of yourself will you have to relinquish if I take this belief away from you? You know, those kinds of more humane considerations get left out of the gladiatorial environment of a debate.
1: We're going to ask you about how we might go about changing people's minds a little bit later. But I I wanted to ask you for another story. The case of Dylan and Missy, this is a woman who tried to convince her husband to leave the religious cult that he had been brought up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened?
3: So they have this like, really obvious love connection, and they had that from the moment that they met when they were both working in this restaurant. And when they met, Dylan was a member of this very strict, very punitive, very kind of sealed-off religious sect so he hadn't had a lot of exposure to ideas outside that environment. And Missy, on the other hand, you know, didn't go in for that kind of thing.
1: And so she was on a mission to try and persuade him to leave.
3: So her way of reconciling these two apparently incompatible thoughts was, I'll marry Dylan, but I will also convince him to leave. Now, the way,
1: the way that most people would try and get someone to leave a sect is to go... The ideas of this sect are crazy, and they believe this, and they believe that, and yeah. how can that make sense? But what actually happened, you write, is that Dylan didn't need to lose his faith in what his elders were saying. He needed to lose faith in them, mm, in the in elders. personally. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. She did something which I think is kind of a bigger act of faith than anything he did as a believer, namely she saw through to the person that he would be once he'd left this sect and she decided that that was the person that she wanted to be married to that was the person that she wanted to stay with and so she did this thing where for years she pretended to him that she was open to being baptized that she was open to being made into a member of this religious sect basically she situated herself inside this environment and pretended that she believed what he believed. And all along she tried to kind of sow little seeds of doubt. And her grand plan was that you know after five years they would have got out and they had kids, they got married, they went on vacation. And then ultimately what happened, there was a religious leader who Missy did an enormous kindness to. Namely, he was up on stage one day like delivering the sermon or the equivalent thing, and he looked super unwell. And Missy, who has a healthcare background, saw this and felt like this is a man who is really seriously unwell. So she went to his spouse and she said, "I think he's, I think he's really unwell. I think he might be on the doorstep of some horrible heart event." And he went to go get it checked out, and Missy was right. you know he, he was really on the threshold of something terrible, and he uh, had a procedure, changed some medications around, was fine, but was fine because of Missy's intervention, like he owed Missy his life. And a couple weeks later, that elder phoned Dylan and said to him, we've decided that Missy is a threat to the congregation. She doesn't have people's best interests at heart. And you have to choose between your wife and your salvation because you can't have both.
1: Because Missy had not joined the cult yeah. after all these I mean, years.
3: It's, yeah, that's the best speculation. And Dylan received this phone call and a moment that makes this a love story. He felt like, well, anyone who could think that my wife is bad must be capable of making mistakes. Like If there is one thing that I know, and I know with absolute certainty, I know as a bedrock principle, it's that my wife is loving and trustworthy and a good person. And that for him was so foundational that when this elder said, Missy's got to go, she's no good, Dylan knew that he was wrong about that at least, right? Like this was enough for Dylan to go. This person's capable of making mistakes. And then if this person's capable of making mistakes, well then why not be capable of making mistakes about God and the nature of the universe and what happens to us after we die and what we ought to do between now and then. And that moment was this kind of astonishing cascade of dominoes where all of a sudden it wasn't because of any argument about the religion. It wasn't any argument at all. It was just a moment of realizing that this person who was so responsible for every part of what Dylan thought, was capable of getting things wrong. And from there, it was a matter of days before Dylan left the sect forever.
1: Let's go to uh, the final story we're going to talk about in this show, which is the case of Susie, who discovers a a really profoundly uncomfortable secret about her husband, whose name was John, um, he was a pedophile, and she loved him. She was married to him. yeah. And perhaps in, in this kind of case, you think of a woman like that as an enabler. Like, why the heck didn't she understand what he was doing? Why yeah. did she believe him? Why did she not see the obvious signs?
3: So what happened was... Susie discovered on John's computer while she was looking for a babysitter's phone number, uh, a list of names with sexual acts next to them. And at first she thought that she had just discovered evidence of some kind of sex addiction or like multiple affairs or something like this. I mean, she assumed that it was all in the realm of the adult. And then there there followed a period of some months where they sort of split up and got back together and he moved out and he stayed in hotels and they went to marriage counseling and it was tricky and difficult. and there was a point towards the end of that very difficult falling out where he became quite psychiatrically unwell and needed to be admitted to a hospital. And while he was in hospital, he wrote her um, a many-page letter explaining that, in fact, this was this was a pedophilia problem, not a infidelity problem, and that this had been something that had been part of his life since he was 12 years old. In Susie's case, I think what's interesting is, you know, actually for her there wasn't that much to see, blessedly. She's not one of these people who had – Hundreds and hundreds of clues that she could have, you know, pieced something together from. There wasn't that much that she could have seen. But all the same, she found herself in this hideous position of shame where anyone who she spoke to about this, who she was candid with, had the thought that we've had namely, how could you possibly have missed this? You know, were you involved even? Like, that's the kind of degree of suspicion that it's natural to have. Like, did you? are you covering this up and you're just happy that you didn't get caught? Or kind of in some ways sadder and worse, she was ashamed of herself. She, she would speak to herself in the same way and say, how is it possible that I didn't see?
2: We could avoid situations like maybe being married to a pedophile or something if we were just extremely in doubt of everything. Many times in rationalism, we're encouraged to doubt everything in the yeah. history of science. You hear this all the time. But what are the costs of doubting everything?
3: Mm. It's such a nice slogan, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that you can feel really proud of, like, "Oh, I doubt everything. I'm I'm so like hard nosed and skeptical." But what that ignores is that that comes at the expense of very ordinary, trusting, kind human relationships. I have a, I have a friend uh, back home who's a literary theorist. His name is Dan Dixon, and he told he said this great thing to me once. We we were talking about the suspension of disbelief, and he said, "Like, no one goes to a cinema or opens a book." And has to remind themselves to turn off their skepticism. You know, like suspension of disbelief. What's suspension? It just happens. It's just this kind of natural, beautiful thing where you suspend doubt in a way that you're not even conscious of because that's what you do when you want to be close to something. That's what you do when you are at ease in the way that you are with, you know, a book that you like, or more importantly, with a person that you love. And the injunction, you know, doubt everything is very strident and it sounds real good on a bumper sticker. But it ignores the fact that if you really did seriously doubt everything, it would be chaos and more importantly, it would be unkind chaos. It would stop you from being able to have these moments of unguarded intimacy with people around us. and You'd be
1: very lonely.
3: You'd be so lonely. You would be so untrusting that there would be no way for other people to relate to you.
2: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And we're talking to Eleanor Gordon-Smith about her book, Stop Being Reasonable we're talking about this case of a woman who discovered that she had married and was in love with a man who was a genuine pedophile in the creepiest way. And we're talking about what it takes not just to change your mind, but then to rebuild your sense of yourself. Mm. So much of what we believe really is that, isn't it? It's not, we add up a bunch of evidence and we come down on the side where there's the most evidence. It's about, it's tied up with who we are.
3: Totally. It's it's the most striking thing that I learned while working on this book and hearing the story of how someone changes their mind is just hearing the story of how they change their life. You know, you, you learn so much about who they are and what they believe and what they hope for and who they trust and who they love and how they see themselves and where they want their world to wind up in a couple of years' time. It's really important, I think, to do ourselves the service of letting that stuff into our debates and into our discussions with people. You know, it's bizarre to imagine that like I'll arrive at some belief by this very complicated idiosyncratic individual process. It'll be really important and intimate and personal to me, held in place really tightly by a scaffolding that has to do with who I am and what I hope for and all this personal information – And then you are tasked with removing that belief with like this surgical pair of tweezers and you're only allowed to use reasons and facts. You're not allowed to talk to me about my personal relationship to that belief. Like what a strange handicap to give ourselves. What a strange way to rob ourselves of so many useful tools when if we allowed ourselves to be a little more like rich or complex in our interactions with each other, we could let some of that stuff into the way that we change our minds.
2: And this matters because- in some of the areas where people have disagreements or they truly are misguided, there are real consequences. I mean, to take a oh, yeah. pretty obvious but very concrete example, vaccine denial. Yeah. The people who don't vaccinate their kids are putting their kids at risk. They're putting other people at risk. And we're seeing yeah. all these terrible diseases bounce back. And
3: I know. We've brought back the plague, haven't we, by now? Or is it the Black <laughs> Death. It's one of them that came back. And I was like, this is a satire like this is a bad joke of where irrationality can take and
2: us. it's happening in the most educated parts of the highly developed world yeah. and yet people who who are trying to assert the science and convince these vaccine deniers that they're wrong have discovered that you can't just come to them with facts mm. What is the right way to do it? So we're now on to solutions. Yes. yes, that's <laughs> yes. <laughs> The theme of our show.
3: There is actually really uh, troubling evidence that the more counter evidence you present to someone on a particular view, the more firmly they believe the thing that you're trying to dissuade them of. Like in very real terms, you can watch their kind of confidence in the belief crank up in proportion to how much counter evidence they've had.
2: I actually spent a lot of my career analyzing, researching all the 9 theories. The conspiracy The conspiracy theories. theories yeah. And I saw that in action. So is there a way to do an end run about that? To not just load them down with facts, but to speak to them on that more emotional level or to speak to the reasons that they're committed to th- this vaccine denial, for example.
3: Yeah. I mean, I want to be really cautious about speculating about this kind of thing. Um, I do think that there is a very important role for understanding the genealogy of someone's belief. So I do think it's really important with any particular person to try to understand where this particular instantiation of that belief comes from. Because, you know, I mean, there's, it has a face, namely, I don't want my child to be vaccinated, but why that particular face has adhered to this particular person can be very different depending on, you know, what's going on for them and what they're hoping for. I mean, sometimes it's motivated by a desire to belong. Sometimes it's motivated by a general suspicion about like authority in general. Sometimes it's a, a like a maniacally controlling urge to believe that like they are the only one who is capable of knowing what's best for their child. I think very often we do ourselves the disservice of failing to do that kind of causal history of a particular belief. And if you want to really reach someone, understanding where the belief comes from in them is such an important part of being able to help them unpick it. So know?
1: listening to them carefully respecting
3: them. Well, but see, this is the thing is I really don't want to generalize from that because mm-hmm. I mean, like I do think that's a solution and I do think that it's a solution in some particular kinds of case. Like I've seen it happen. I've seen this kind of strategy work on removing people's beliefs, but then there are all kinds of really troubling counter considerations. Like for example, to whom do I owe that kind of patience? To whom do I owe that kind of respect and empathy right. and time? I so, could see your eyebrow going up.
2: Well, I'm I guess I'm somewhat committed to the idea that no one is completely beyond the pale or beyond reach of human connection. You're such an idealist. I know, yeah. Well, I think my favorite line in the book is one of your recommendations for how to talk in a way to help people change their minds. Mm. And you say, we can only debate what our opponents avow. So explain what you mean there.
3: What I mean is that in order to have a conversation with someone about why they think what they think, they have to be prepared to do their part, which is to show up and to argue the rival case. And one of the most frustrating experiences that you can have, which I think actually many of us have all the time, is to be trying to persuade someone out of something which they won't own up to believing or they won't own up to thinking. And I don't necessarily think that they're lying. You know, I think that maybe they... They just don't understand that they think these things.
1: So give, give me an
3: example. I think like so many of our debates are like this. So many times you want to debate with someone about the bedrock for them. Their attitude to women is a really good one. Their attitude to like people of a different race. That's also the kind of thing that can be invisible to them. So they won't drag it up to the surface. They won't engage with the fact that they think this. And if they won't drag it up to the surface, then you can't engage with it
1: you changed my mind in in not seeing emotion and what we sometimes call rational thought right at, at war as with opposed each other, yeah. as opposed to each other yeah. that they're very much part of yeah. the same story
3: I'm so happy to hear that because So I mean, so I think that emotions can be rational, you know, I think that emotions can be a fitting response to certain facts, you know, I mean, like Sartre has this stuff about like, what is it to be well adjusted to an unwell world, you know, I think it's perfectly rational to have anger and fear and discontent and outrage, you know, these are responses to facts in the same way that beliefs are responses to facts. But I also think that, you know, as long as we go about in the world thinking, feelings and rationality are opposed to each other, then when someone is feeling a lot or is being very emotional, that's the same as them being irrational. And that's a horrible thing to have to think about yourself and other people. So for example, when I have in my life tried to change people's minds and it's really mattered to me, so it's made me angry and upset. As long as you think that feelings are irrational, then you have to think I'm being irrational right now. That's a horrible thing to have to think about yourself when you're in the heat of deeply believing something and caring about it. It's a very kind of a weird shame relationship to be in with yourself. So I'm very glad to hear uh, that, that that's different for you now.
1: Eleanor Gordon-Smith, author of the really fine new book, Stop Being Reasonable. You have been very reasonable, and, and thanks for
2: joining <laughs> My us. My pleasure. But not, but not without passion. <laughs> My favorite line in that whole interview, Richard, is when Eleanor described her younger self as being a stunt pilot of rationalism <laughs> you know, when she was on the debate yes. club and everything. And and I really relate to that. I'm, I I I've put such a, a priority on rationalism. I think there's so many debates today, and you've heard me on many of them, where we really knew we'd need to challenge ourselves to be rational, but understanding the limits of that and understanding that just because I think all these ideas make so much sense. doesn't mean I'm going to convince anybody else. I think that's vital.
1: I think I'm more proudly emotional. And for instance, uh, and I've mentioned this before on the show, I believe in God, even though I have absolutely no evidence uh, to to put forward in a rational debate as to why I do. So some of this stuff is just more through the heart, perhaps, than the mind. But what I loved about what Eleanor said is sometimes our rational beliefs and our emotional beliefs are part of the same picture rather than being in opposition to each other.
2: I absolutely think that's true. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's often our emotional beliefs that drive us to study something more, to use rationalism, to come to a better decision. If you weren't emotional and wanting the world to be better or angry that it's not right, then perhaps you'd never get the motivation to do anything to fix the problems and, in the and world.
1: And beyond that, if you weren't anchored in a certain identity, uh, you wouldn't have that as well. I mean, I think that we need some kind of personal structure our belief system to then build a better argument.
2: This is How Do We Fix It?
1: I'm I'm, Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, Check us out at DaviesContent.com if you want to make a podcast or make the podcast that you're currently producing sound better.
2: And we do have, we have revived our newsletter. So please come to our site, how do we fix it.me sign up for our newsletter.
1: And the newsletter has a new author. <laughs> yeah,
2: you. For, for You're now. taking it over from me. <laughs> I, we promise we won't spam you, but every couple of weeks you should expect to see a little bit about our current show, upcoming shows, and other things that are going on in the How do we fix it world. Thanks, Jim.